Uh, right. Well, um, shall we begin? Um, I'm advised that I have to ask you to turn your mobiles onto silent mode, please. Silent. We have to turn ours off because it's hoped there will be a podcast of this and apparently our mobiles, if on, might interfere with the sound system. So, my name's Paul Cheshire. Uh, I'm Professor of Economic Geography here at the LSE and this is one of a series of lectures we've had this, uh, this, this year uh, dealing with different aspects of the urban world. And uh, I'm very pleased indeed to, to welcome you, Alison. So we've got Alison Nemo tonight to talk to us on the transformation of London East and West, more or less, <laughs> which she has had a big uh, hand in, or is still having a big hand in. Uh, she's had a very distinguished career in the sort of interface between planning, uh, real estate and development, and urban regeneration. Um, she's been recognised in many ways and I think is one of the rather limited number of recipients of the RTPI's gold medal. Is that, is that right? Um, so, and now just um, is it about two years, she's been the chief executive of the Crown, uh, of the Crown Estate. Uh, the Crown Estate is one of those should be much better known, but I think still relatively unknown, major forces, facts in British life. So Alison's in charge of it, and I look forward very much to your speech, Alison. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, so transforming uh, a city from London's east end uh, to the, uh, the west end. London's a true global city, uh, but what I love about it is also a city of little towns, distinct neighbourhoods and villages, and I live uh, in Bermondsey, which I think is a perfect example uh, of a, a real neighbourhood, and I think this really sets London apart from other cities that have had this grand uh, plan uh, approach. Uh, and the great London estates, of which the Crown Estate is, is one of them, has helped have this enduring impact on uh, London um, and the shape of London over many centuries. So, first of all, the, the, the Crown Estate, um, we're one of the oldest, well, we are the oldest of uh, the London estates, uh, and I do mean really old. Our um, origins date back to 1066, when William the Conqueror uh, assumed control of all land in England under right of the crown. Uh, and we've endured over the centuries, um, clearly uh, changing uh, with the city, uh, and hopefully pri providing a role model for some of the new estates, particularly in Canary Wharf uh, and, uh, and East London, that are now being uh, established. So tonight I just wanted to really touch on uh, my last 10 years in uh, London, uh, my personal experience and some of the reflections um, on two uh, really extraordinary uh, projects, um, one in the East End and one on the West End. Um, both on the face of it look and feel very different, uh, but if you take a closer look I think there are a number of um, really uh, important themes uh, underpinning the success of both of them. Uh, the most important uh, four being uh, vision and ambition, you know, that real sort of scale and, and, and uh, vision. 
Uh, secondly, stewardship, and by that I mean um, taking a long-term uh, and holistic approach to uh, development, very much centred on placemaking. Thirdly, a strategic approach, so looking at the, the ownership and uh, bringing land together in a for- portfolio approach. And then last, but um, probably out of all of the things most important, uh, clear uh, leadership over time, uh, dedicated delivery, and then that ongoing uh, management. Uh, and I think it's a timely uh, discussion uh, to be having tonight in how we um, look back and look at how London has changed and developed uh, and how we go about reshaping uh, the city of the future. Uh, many challenges um, we have in uh, London, uh, not least um, sustainability, uh, population growth, um, the, the housing debate that's going on at the moment, but also broader challenges uh, in terms of technological change and continuing the success of, of London as a, as, a, as a creative and uh, living city, uh, as well as being a global city. As uh, Paul said, for, uh, for my sins, I'm a, a town planner and a charter surveyor, so um, fairly rare breed. Uh, um, but my, my career really turned into a passion uh, when I was in uh, Manchester. A bomb blew a big hole in the middle of my adopted home uh, city of uh, Manchester. Uh, and you look at that and you think, well, how would you uh, re- respond? Uh, and the challenge uh, led by the City Council was to turn uh, a very negative event, turn adversity on its head, turn it into a real opportunity to reshape uh, the, the city uh, and create a, a bigger and better uh, and more civilised city centre. And so my career is very much developed from rat and big, complicated city centre regeneration projects uh, into running the Crown Estate, um, which I don't know how familiar uh, you are with them, but hopefully um, you'll be more informed by the end of this talk. But it's an £8.6 billion business, which might surprise uh, many of you. So tonight, tonight what I want to do is just bring out uh, a little bit of what I've learned uh, along the way um, and share with you really what's quite a, a personal story. So come with me on a whistle-top tour of two remarkable projects, um, starting um, with the East End of uh, London. Um, the, the Games um, was um, obviously a fantastic, the largest um, sporting uh, project in the world. Uh, but if you really look beneath that, it was really about regenerating a huge swathe of uh, East, uh, East uh, London. The second story, uh, as I said, feels uh, a world apart. Uh, is the fascinating story of uh, Regent Street uh, and uh, the, the West End. Uh, a great piece of uh, city planning, uh, championed by the uh, Prince Regent, owned by the Crown Estate, and two centuries later is still uh, one of the best, most famous, most iconic uh, shopping streets in uh, London. So, uh, first of all, to the East End and London 2012. Um, as I say, let's look through the, the headlines of this fantastic uh, global event uh, and look behind what we were really trying to do, which was in essence was to create a new piece of city. Um, I started um, uh, on the, uh, the Olympics back in December 2003 uh, and I worked on the project for eight years up until really a year out when the venues were finished and we were in the sort of last countdown to the, the Games. So it was quite an extraordinary story. Um, 
And um, the, the real question is, well, how on earth did we, we do that? People forget right at the, uh, the, the beginning of, of the, uh, the bid and our sort of Olympic adventure, um, sort of really how tough it was. There was huge antipathy, uh, difficult to believe now, but huge disagreement as to whether we even wanted the Games in the first place. We were collectively beating ourselves up about uh, Wembley uh, Stadium. Do you remember that? I can't remember how late that was going to be. Uh, and there was a real bad joke around at the time that uh, Wembley was only going to be the, the only venue that we could guarantee was going to be ready in 2012. And this was everybody's favourite uh, cartoon. This is what the Olympics was going to look like in 2012. It's an architectural model of how it will look which is basically a building site and, uh, and half finished. And, you know, as a nation, we'd, we'd really lost our confidence in uh, developing these sort of big mega uh, projects. But London had a great story. Uh, we'd hosted the Games twice before, both times in West London, uh, both times at short notice, uh, one to do with um, uh, the First World War and the, well, the Second World War and one to do with the eruption of um, uh, Vesuvius. Um, but this time, the mayor, Ken Livingstone, uh, was determined that it, the Games were going to be in East London and it was going to drive that much bigger uh, regeneration programme in the, the East End. We took inspiration from all around the world. We looked at past Games. Uh, and we also looked at some of the amazing things that had happened in London over the years, um, not least the, the Festival of Britain back in 19. Uh, 51, and looking at the legacy that it left uh, in the city, uh, both physical and uh, cultural. Um, and the site selected uh, in East London, we always sort of say, um, if you wanted to make a, a project really difficult, you would put it in the crack of the A to Z, you know, have, have it in uh, two uh, London boroughs. Um, but uh, Ken Livingston had a very wicked sense of humour uh, and the site actually um, um, went over four different uh, local authority boroughs. So uh, a tough, uh, a tough uh, challenge. Uh, the park itself was about 500 acres, so a very large area, but put in the, the village in Stratford and it was, uh, it was double that. Uh, and I, I remember very vividly my first uh, visit out to the site in 2003 of very much a, a sort of polluted uh, and uh, derelict um, post-industrial landscape. Uh, 13 kilometres of uh, power lines uh, marching down uh, the valley through where the village was going to go and through where the stadium was. Um, one of the most polluted sites in uh, Europe fragmented ownership, crisscrossed by a whole range of uh, roads uh, and railways. It was very much the, the, the city's uh, backyard, a dumping ground for difficult uses, and there were all sorts of uses in the area, from the old uh, Hackney dog track um, to um, traveller sites, uh, scrapyards, and um, the most famous uh, local landmark, uh, Fridge, uh, Fridge Mountain. So it was a really mixed uh, area, and yet you could really see the potential. A uh, fantastic network of uh, canals uh, and rivers and waterways right on the edge of the city uh, and, of course, right close to the edgy and really creative parts of uh, Hackney. And it was also a site with a fascinating uh, history uh, they invented uh, petrol here, uh, and where Fridge Mountain was was the old uh, Yardley uh, 
uh, factory which was very famous in terms of uh, um, uh, a number of very famous um, artists. Technically, London was a strong bid, uh, but so were the others. We were up against a pretty stellar lineup of other international cities Paris, New York, Madrid, Moscow. The scale of our ambition in this transformation was both our biggest uh, challenge um, but also our biggest uh, advantage. We did, uh, to muster some support, did um, some, uh, some great marketing, actually, some very patriotic marketing, make Britain uh, proud. Um, but I have to say, back then, creating the uh, sort of public sort of support and enthusiasm behind the, uh, the, the bid was, was pretty tough. I was lucky enough to be part of the, uh, the bid team in uh, Singapore, uh, and it still makes the hair on the, on the back of my neck stand up when I think of that uh, day, the 5th of July uh, 2005. You can hear the tension, the London presentation, uh, colleagues come back, Tessa Jowell, Ken Livingston, they're in tears, they're emotionally so hyped up after the London uh, presentation. The votes are cast the other cities fall out one by one. First Moscow, then New York, then Madrid. More votes are cast, and we go head-to-head with Paris. And then there was this long pregnant pause till the evening for the final session. Everyone's assembled for the final vote. 58% of the world's media, and there are a lot of them, are in front of the Paris delegation, Good old BBC is loyally in front of the London delegation. (laughs) Jack Rogg seems to take forever opening the envelope, uh, and he utters those immortal words. The games of the 30th Olympiad are awarded to London, uh, and life was never going to be quite the same. The world went mad. We were texting uh, colleagues, a few of them are here tonight actually, in uh, Trafalgar Square, uh, and uh, it was an extraordinary moment. Um, I don't know, I I think a lot of my friends and colleagues remember that moment when they heard on the radio uh, that London had won uh, the Games. What a party, what a high. 24 hours hours later, we land back into London, uh, into 7-7, and the world looked very different the following morning. But we had a job to do. My job was to set up the Olympic Delivery Authority to get on with the job with the delivery. Um, First stop was Treasury. We had those power lines, 13 kilometres of power lines uh, to underground. We had a contract the size of a telephone directory uh, to let. We were told it would take at least five years to do. We had three uh, and we had no budget, and it was going to cost £250 million. So first stop, Treasury, uh, and to get some money and to get the whole project moving. The scale and complexity and the speed of the project meant we had things to do differently. We had to be innovative. We had to be smart. We couldn't do things in a sort of traditional, organised, sequential way. We had to twin and triple track uh, a lot of what we had to do. But the fundamental approach we took was a master plan approach. So it was very much looking at how we created a master plan for the Games, but how we created that in a way that we designed a new piece of city uh, and then came back and overlaid the Games. We left, left, learned a lot of really important lessons for other cities, 
um, about how the Games was an extreme event and if we were going to get it right and get it right for legacy, uh, then we had to design for legacy and then basically expand um, to, uh, to accommodate the, uh, the, the, the Games. This master plan then set the whole overall framework for what came next and it brought us a lot of time to then do all of the detailed design on the individual venues uh, and the, uh, the infrastructure. And we set up a very streamlined um, uh, planning process. So the planning committee met once a fortnight uh, every week uh, for four years and handled over 2,500 planning applications. So hugely uh, complicated process. We set and were set pretty tough targets on everything from sustainability, accessibility, uh, design quality, a lot of work on local job skills, training, and these were all embedded into uh, the planning conditions. Uh, and I remember there were 365 planning conditions attached to the, uh, the, the master plan approval, uh, and then there was also a big section 106 agreement so that locked all of those commitments in. Uh, and that became really important to us when uh, we hit the financial crisis and there was round after round of value engineering. Having those commitments locked into the master plan was absolutely critical and provided a really important backstop for the team. It's very rare that you get the opportunity to plan uh, a new piece of city on anything like this scale. Um, and in terms of scale and complexity, it was really five projects rather than one project, or if you like, one project with five stages. Uh, stage one was, was obviously the, the land assembly, uh, demolition, uh, relocations of all the, the, um, the, the people and uses on the site. Uh, phase, stage two was very much about um, build one of the largest uh, construction projects in Europe, uh, Phase three was then uh, put on the most fantastic, uh, largest global sporting event uh, in, uh, in the world, uh, with the whole of the world watching. Uh, then when the party was over, deconstruct, and then the final stage, fifth stage, was about constructing the legacy, uh, and that was going to be one of the, and is, one of the largest regeneration projects in Europe. The delivery was underpinned with uh, streamlined powers. Uh, we had a, an Olympic Act, uh, passed on the 1st of April 2006. Uh, this established the ODA and gave us um, uh, planning powers, uh, amongst other things. Um, the Mayor and the London Development Agency um, had really focused on um, uh, assembling the site through one of the largest compulsory purchase orders in, uh, in Europe. And this was a really good example of cross-agency uh, working. Um, the CPO um, as assembled over three, three the, um, bought out over 300 firms, all sorts of things like traveller sites, allotments. It was a very complicated thing to orchestrate. And I think the London Development Agency never got uh, the, the credit that it really deserved for that. But for us, our first priority was getting a, an agreed brief and, uh, and uh, budget. We made a lot of promises during the bid and we really had to focus down on what were people's expectations and what could be delivered uh, within the timescale. And there was a lot of uh, negotiation, a lot of changes around the bid book to really focus on what was best for uh, the, the legacy and then how could we be flexible in terms of delivering for the games. So we, in the end, we used a lot uh, more permanent uh, existing venues like uh, Wembley Arena that weren't in the original bid. And we... Um, we built a number of 
the most of any Olympic city, um, more, more temporary venues than any other Olympic city. Uh, and this is just to illustrate the scale. It was, um, it was um, very... Uh, this is the basketball venue. Everyone called it the Meringue. It was that sort of beautiful white uh, building. Um, 18,000 seat venue a temporary venue of this scale had never been built in this country uh, before the other key challenge was about building the team, uh, growing a team uh, from one, which was me when we came back from Singapore into um, a very large and sophisticated uh, delivery machine Uh, time, money and budget were key priorities but in reality, the programme was king. Uh, we set out the programme. Uh, this was the 2006 programme, and it didn't change. And I remember um, my chief exec, David Higgins, uh, sticking this on the wall in his office, uh, and he basically said, that's the programme. We called it 241, was our shorthand for the programme. Two years to acquire the land, um, build the team, plan, design, and procure four years to get on and build it, uh, and then one year uh, to test prior to the Games, or what we always thought was our, uh, was our contingency. And that was it. Very simple uh, programme, um, simple plan, non-negotiable. That's what had to be delivered, uh, and that's what we all were very focused on setting out to do. Town planning was absolutely critical uh, in terms of that uh, delivery uh, and we worked very hard with the, uh, the local um, community and local uh, boroughs and you know, in all honesty that was a tough thing uh, to do. For many locals the Olympics was like this big mega project that sort of landed um, out, of, um, out, of, out of space and was very much uh, a, a given. Um, and it didn't feel um, it, it didn't feel that they were part of it. And of course, it didn't help. Then, for our security reasons, we had to put a 12-kilometer fence uh, all the way around uh, the park. So, it, it was a it's tough delivering these big mega projects in um, what are sometimes fragile local uh, communities. The early years very much focused on uh, the big uh, clean-up. We had to literally uh, scrape the 500-acre site clean uh, and and wash it and and sort of wipe 200 years of industrial activity. Until I I saw this slide when I was putting these together last week, I'd never noticed the cat there before. Um, that was uh, <laughs> that was Mike's slide. Actually, that's uh, we um, we were busy getting um, relocating frogs and newts and all sorts of things on the on the site. But the thing that became a real cool celeb were the uh, the cats on the site. The um, and uh, Joanna Lumley even sort of got behind the um, rescuing the cats on the site. And uh, Black Jack became uh, quite a quite a cool uh, celeb. So I'd forgotten all about it until I saw the. Uh, so the, 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 the slide. Um, so we had to um, clean up uh, the, um, the the soil. Um, so re- remediating the land, uh, relocating in terms of ecology, and then creating um, very sort of sophisticated um, new sort of coir matting um, and uh, wetlands to accept the 380 odd uh, wetland plan plants the 4,000 trees uh, and the lawns and the gardens that you now see uh, in uh, in East London. 
And we had to do a lot of demolition. We demolished about 200 buildings, um, cleaned up the, uh, the, the waterways, um, and built a whole complete new network of infrastructure right across the, the side. So uh, on, the, on the slide there, you can see um, our deep foul pumping station. Uh, it's the only deep foul pumping station that's ever been on the front page of the Architects' Journal. So we're very proud of... Uh, uh, we used to call it p- uh, pinky and perky. So even the utility buildings and the infrastructure, a lot of thought, uh, a lot of design uh, went, went into them. And then we had to reconnect the site. So uh, huge amounts of uh, the new energy centre, pipes and cables across the site, and then 30 new uh, bridges to reconnect uh, the site into a single uh, site. The next critical phase of the project there was then um, getting the um, substructure and getting the venues uh, out of the ground um, and then probably the single biggest and most challenging part of the project was the village. So you can see Chobham Academy in the foreground here uh, and then the, the village building 2,700 uh, homes uh, within three years. Um, <coughs> gave quite a lot of the team uh, a lot of sleepless nights. It had never been done before, and I'd hazard a guess that nobody would really want to do it again. And these, this sequence of aerial shots just really try and show that sort of scale of transformation and the speed of transformation. So this was uh, November in 2008, and really, in terms of the, the, the pictures... Um, you can see a little bit of uh, earth moving going on. This is the main um, sort of north-south uh, Lee Valley uh, River, uh, and this was um, Stratford and where the village was going to be. And then a year later, and by 2009, you can start to see the, the broadcast and media centre coming out of the ground. You can see the stadium already really trying to, already taking shape, uh, and all the cranes around uh, Stratford and a little bit of the velodrome starting to come out of the ground. And then by the time we fast forward to November 2010, you can see uh, the Broadcasting Media Centre, um, the, the wonderful meringue, the basketball venue uh, really starting to take shape. You can see the wonderful roof on the aquatic centre and the village is really uh, starting to take shape and the roof's just gone on the, uh, the velodrome. And you can start to see that wonderful wetland bowl in the north end of the park starting to take shape and then by February 2011 uh, you can start to see the, um, the, the, the wetlands and the, the, the planting um, and the, uh, the, the temporary sides going on the, uh, the aquatic centre so just to give you a flavour you know, that's an incredible amount of development uh, and a lot of the, the investment was going in the ground and at the peak we were spending about £150 million a month, so um, incredible scale of activity. But for me, the real transformation came when, in spring 2011 when the park literally went from brown uh, to green and all of a sudden the sort of dirty big construction site started to look like uh, this wonderful uh, new park that really started to take shape. Um, with the, the fantastic um, uh, wild uh, flower meadows um, and then the north end of the park up near the, uh, the velodrome. The venues, as I say, were, were delivered uh, by an incredibly dedicated uh, team of people. Over the full length of the project, there were about 30,000 people uh, that worked on uh, the, uh, the, the Olympic Park 
from our um, uh, apprenticeships um, to um, our main uh, contractors. Um, and we set ourselves some really tough targets in terms of um, uh, local, local employment, high levels of diversity. We didn't have as many women working on the project as we would have liked to have, but we had some real successes through our Chicks and Bricks program. We're getting some fantastic young women, plumbers, engineers, um, and uh, plumbers and, and plasterers onto the site, and we had, we had a lot of fun uh, doing that. So very much the, the, um, our job uh, at the Olympic Delivery Authority was, was um, creating the theatre uh, for the Games, and Seb Coe's team and LOCOG uh, was really all about putting on the show uh, and what a fantastic show it was. Um, I just I remember this uh, moment on uh, what was uh, called uh, Super Saturday when uh, Jessica Ennis um, won her gold medal. It was just an extraordinary moment and then the medals came uh, thick and fast after that. So a fantastic Olympics but also a fantastic uh, Paralympics and the whole magic of the event, the athletes, the volunteers, uh, the army sort of stepping in at the last minute to sort of rescue the position from uh, G4L. I mean, it was just the most extraordinary thing. And I think London came alive and was a changed uh, city. So if we fast forward to today, um, much of the Queen Elizabeth Park is now open to the public. How, how many of you have been out there recently? Quite a few. <coughs> It's, uh, I think it's great, actually. I've been out uh, quite a few times. I think the, uh, the, the legacy company, the transformation, uh, they've done a fantastic uh, job. The first residents have moved into the village. Um, the pupils are now in the, the school. The venues are either open, like the Copper Box, and have had um, some, some great events in them, um, and others are still due to, um, uh, the, I think, the first events being held in the, uh, the, the velodrome uh, this weekend. So... I think it's going to... I'm absolutely confident that it's going to change East London and actually change London forever and tip... Do what Ken Livingstone wanted it to do at the beginning, which was really to tip that economic balance from the West uh, to the East. The the little picture in the middle is of Impkin, and I've just seen Phil came in, actually. The... um, the, uh, the, the team that designed the park did a fantastic job and this was in the wet woodlands and they were very naughty one day and sort of snuck in, Impkin in through security uh, so that there was always somebody uh, living in the park during all the construction and when it was closed down for security keeping an eye on, uh, keeping an eye on everything and spreading uh, good, uh, good uh, spirits I hope he's still there, I'm not sure if any I hope nobody's uh, stolen him <laughs> Um, so just very briefly um, some of the lessons from uh, the Olympics we we very much used the games to uh, inspire Um, we proved that when we set our minds to it we can do it Uh, on the games nobody wanted to pick up the phone to Jack Rogg and say uh, it's going to be late Um, can can we move the date can we move the year Um, it had to be delivered on time Politics is key, getting that cross-party uh, political support uh, day in, day out over the whole course of the project was absolutely critical. It was hard won, but absolutely critical. 
uh, and then getting the communication right, as I said at the beginning, uh, not just trying to work hard to get media and get people behind it, um, but also the internal communication on the site so that everybody was really, really clear about what success uh, looked like. Finally, it's, um, uh, it's a team game. Uh, culture and leadership were really important. There were a lot of agencies, uh, a lot of disparate agencies involved in delivering um, both the big build and the games, and it was really important that we all worked uh, together. Uh, we had one chance to get it right, uh, and it was an extraordinary team that delivered uh, the project. And then values at the heart of everything. So that's really about where we went back to on uh, the key decisions. We'd made promises in Singapore, uh, the greenest games and accessible games, a safe games, about pushing boundaries and creating this extraordinary sporting event, but also uh, an extraordinary legacy. Uh, and that was a commitment we'd made. And I think the team uh, delivered big time uh, on all of those promises. And I just wanted to leave the finish the Olympic section uh, with just a, a picture of the, the velodrome. As I say, they hold their first main event um, this Saturday. If you get the chance, go. It is the most extraordinary, uh, beautiful building, a fantastic unison of engineering, architecture, um, probably the, um, the most sustainable building, sports building, certainly in Europe. And if you are an adrenaline junkie, get the chance to, to uh, cycle right up in the top of the track. It's like flying. You have to be a bit of adrenaline junkie, but do go for it. It is extraordinary. But go and have a look at the buildings. Um, go and have a look at the park. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, story uh, for London. And so to um, London's West End and Regent Street. Paul, Paul um, talked about the Crown Estate being a bit of a secret, so I just wanted to say uh, a little bit about um, the, the Crown Estate before I come to uh, Regent Street. Uh, an extraordinary organisation. We, we scribbled this diagram, um, uh, this picture uh, within uh, the organisation, just as a way of actually trying in one piece of paper to capture all the different things uh, that we do so it talks to being an extraordinary um, organisation. It talks about our geographic spread right across the, uh, the country. It talks about our urban estate. Um, you can see Regent Street here uh, and Piccadilly and our sort of development uh, portfolio. Some of the lovely little touches like the bees in Regent Street. We're very proud of our Regent Street uh, honey. It looks to um, uh, our estate down at uh, Windsor. Uh, where we manage a large area of Windsor, Windsor Great uh, Park. It talks about our values and how we put sustainability right at the heart of the business. And it talks about one of the largest rural estates, commercial rural estates in the country, um, from the um, cycle tracks and mountains up in uh, Glenlivet uh, down to large areas of uh, Wiltshire. It talks about our offshore um, business, our wind farms, our uh, marine minerals and dredging, our 17,000 moorings uh, that we have around uh, the coastline. Uh, and, it, um, and it talks about also how we do business. So the team very much being at the heart of the Crown Estate uh, and then how we do business very much in, uh, in partnership. But it's not just this amazing portfolio of uh, wind farms and uh, rural, um, urban, owning over 14 million square feet in, in London that makes us special. Um, 
as I said at the beginning, we trace our origins back to the, the Norman uh, conquest, um, although the modern history or the modern history of the Crown State goes back only 250 uh, years. Uh, and that goes back to the reign of George uh, III, when after his coronation um, back in 1760, the king surrendered um, all his hereditary revenues to Parliament in return for an income uh, for life in the form of uh, the civil list, now the sovereign grant. Um, so a lot of history, but in essence now we are a modern uh, business created by act of uh, Parliament, uh, and in practice we've got two stakeholders, the monarch... Um, who remains the owner of the underlying assets, uh, and then Treasury, who is the recipient of our annual profits. But as I say, over these last two and a half centuries, the Crown Estate's very much changed, and we're a modern business. And we're very much a values-driven business as well. Our core values are commercialism, integrity, um, and stewardship. And we have a very passionate and skilled team uh, at the Crown Estate that deliver great commercial results but also live these values as well. And we see the two going hand in hand and very much reinforcing each other. And as I said at the beginning, we're a major player. We're now an £8.6 billion um, company business. uh, And over the last 10 years, we've delivered £2 billion to the Treasury. So help help, um, taxpayers um, in terms of uh, public um, spending. And you could say we're one of the very few um, businesses that actually pays 100% uh, tax. All of our revenues, all of our net revenues go to uh, Treasury. So that's a whistle-stop tour of the the Crown uh, estate. Um, As I say, it's it's an extraordinary uh, estate uh, in land with with a great history. So Regent Street... This is a map um, of uh, the West End, or a bit of the West End, in 1804. So this is very much pre... Yes, there was life pre-Regent Street. Um, Regent Street's predecessor was called Swallow Street. Uh, It was a street full of pawnbrokers, plagued by professional highwaymen, uh, and um, described by leading journalists of the day as a long, devious and dirty thoroughfare. Um, Regent Street, as the name suggests, was the inspiration of the, the Prince uh, Regent, uh, later to become George uh, IV. Uh, and basically, Regent Street was uh, designed to connect his uh, rural royal estates. So he had about 500 acres up in a place called Marlebone, uh, which is now you'd recognise as uh, Regent's Park. Uh, and he basically wanted a wonderful processional route that um, connected his rural estate uh, to his palace in St. James's. Uh, and it was basically to be a grand ceremonial route uh, and was really a, a project of staggering uh, vision uh, at the time uh, and huge, huge ambition. And the prince brought in um, John Nash in 1809 uh, to create this uh, wonderful, wonderful new street. And John Nash was probably um, our greatest ever uh, town planner um, and an act was passed uh, to allow the estate to basically develop the street and it gave us compulsory uh, purchase uh, powers uh, and allowed us to borrow the grand sum of £600,000 uh, to build the street. I guess a lot of money in those days. So Regent Street was completed in 1826 and it was the, first, the world's first purpose-built street dedicated to retailing. 
but the street you see uh, uh, today is not Nash's original uh, street. It was completely redeveloped in the 1920s um, and, uh, under King George uh, V, uh, and the retail offer uh, was changed uh, and developed, although um, this amazing uh, shot back then shows that some of, some of the, uh, the super brands that we have on the street haven't changed much. So you've got uh, uh, a very early vision of uh, Hamleys there, uh, and then on the, um, the right-hand side of the picture, you've got uh, a very old version of uh, Liberties. The Regent Street Association was established in 1925 uh, and is still going strong. It's the oldest um, tenants association in, in Britain and was instrumental in um, stopping the whole-scale uh, destruction of Piccadilly Circus and, and Regent Street. Um, some of the transport planners wanted to turn Piccadilly Circus into a giant car park and then have a grade-separated um, uh, approach to sort of pedestrians and, um, and cars on uh, Regent Street. But... Uh, Thank goodness that um, they stopped that and uh, common sense uh, prevailed. Uh, in the uh, 60s, Regent Street was pretty seriously hip and trendy. Um, I don't know if you remember the, the Kink song, um, uh, Dedicated Follower of Fashion. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> they seek him here, they seek him there in Regent Street and Leicester Square. Um, but by the 70s and 80s, I have to say, uh, Regent Street was looking a bit sad. It's seen better days. I haven't seen a yellow cortina on Regent Street for, uh, for a while. Uh, tartan shops and airline booking offices were very much the order of the day. Uh, not too many dedicated followers of fashion. I think they'd all gone to uh, Carnaby Street. Uh, and the street was really um, uh, started a long and slow uh, decline. Um, but 2002 marked the next stage in Regent Street's remarkable history. Um, many of the, the long leasehold interests along the two-kilometre uh, uh, street uh, were falling in, and it gave the Crown Estate a real opportunity uh, to, to take back control of those uh, long leasehold interests um, and to set a, an ambitious new and long-term uh, strategy for, for the street. And it worked. I mean, you, you look at uh, Regent Street today and it's completely transformed. Uh, and this has been the result of a 10-year uh, investment programme. Uh, in fact, our 10-year investment programme has been so successful, it's now a 20-year investment programme. Uh, and the key to success is that we've taken uh, a long-term view. Uh, we've outlined a very clear vision uh, and used the totality of our ownership. Uh, to carefully curate the street and the offer and really reinvest heavily in the fabric. Um, it's now very much an iconic um, street. Um, but in truth, behind those grandiose um, uh, uh, facades, the, 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 the units were really very small. So a lot of what we've been doing is buying up a lot of the land behind Regent Street, um, investing in that beautiful facade and creating... Uh, large flagship stores that international retailers want. Uh, and so we've created um, a smaller number of larger, real flagship um, stores um, and really um, pulled in people from right across uh, the, the world, some fantastic brand names and, and international uh, retailers. And Regent Street's more than just uh, retail. Uh, we're promoting high-quality uh, mixed-use developments. This is our quadrant three development. Um, 
one of the most sustainable buildings in London. Uh, fantastic, great quality design, um, won all sorts of uh, awards, and that's absolutely transformed that bottom end of uh, Regent Street, right next to uh, the Café Royal Hotel, which has been completely transformed, and, and itself very much um, for 100 years being the, the centre of fashionable uh, London with many legends such as Oscar Wilde, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, right through to Ziggy Stardust. The uh, fictional figure was uh, retired in the uh, bar at a very famous uh, party there. Um, we're attracting, uh, these offices are attracting um, global and European headquarters to uh, London, many top companies, most recently Twitter uh, and Telefonica. But in doing Regent Street, we've also learned that the spaces between the buildings are just as important as the buildings themselves. And we've invested about £25 million into the uh, public realm. Uh, this is the famous diagonal at the top of Oxford Circus, getting rid of that horrible uh, cattle pen and really opening it out and making a great piece of um, uh, streetscape. Uh, but also investing in much wider pavements, um, improving air quality uh, and having um, a whole range of traffic-free traffic free days. When we first said we wanted to do it on Regent Street, it was shock, shock horror but now we're doing more and more traffic-free days. We had the whole of um, August, the, the weekends, traffic-free this year, and we've had all sorts of fun with um, fashion shows uh, and then some great uh, culture events and street parties uh, in, in the, uh, the, the street. Um, in St James's, we're very much following uh, similar sort of principles, uh, clear vision, using our extensive ownership, uh, and we're investing over £500 million in the new um, um, combination of reinvesting in the, uh, the old uh, fabric, uh, refurbishment of some of the most fantastic uh, of London's uh, period uh, buildings. Uh, and again, getting right back to um, those sort of fundamentals of placemaking uh, quality and creating destinations which um, aren't available anywhere else uh, in, uh, in London. And our newest development in uh, St James's is St James's Market. This is a £320 million joint uh, venture project. Um, this, um, this was the old, literally historic St James's Market uh, that when Nash built Regent Street um, did away with the market and we're putting back uh, the public space where the market used to be and doing a combination of uh, refurbishment, uh, modern new buildings within the conservation area around this fantastic uh, new square. So just to uh, conclude, um, ultimately good city planning is all about long-termism uh, or what we at the Crown Estates like to call stewardship and placemaking. It's about having uh, a vision, it's about having ambition, and then turning that vision into reality through uh, a master plan and, importantly, through teamwork. Um, in some ways, I feel I've almost come uh, full circle. Uh, I started my uh, career as a young planner, very wet behind the ears in those days, as a young planning officer in Westminster City Council, and it's great to be back in the West End um, and uh, being able to influence in a very positive way uh, the shape and the development and the restoration of so much uh, that we own in the West End. But when I came back to London to work on the Olympic bid uh, ten years ago now, 
something quite unexpected happen. And I fell back in love with this amazing city. Uh, and I know it's a passion that um, many of us in this room share. Um, but with that goes a responsibility on uh, what we do and how we do it um, and how we all contribute to keeping the city great. Um, and perhaps London's mayor should follow the example set uh, by the ancient city of Athens and the oath made by the, the young men of Athens when they became citizens uh, at their swearing-in ceremony. Amongst other things, they had to say, I shall not leave this city any less, but rather greater than I found it. And I think that's something that we should all, as citizens of London, uh, sign up to uh, and really think about not what this city can do for us, but what we can do for this city. Thank you.